now we're going to start studying the Bible together. We're finishing our 1 Corinthians series through the middle chapters called The Messed Up Church. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bible, crack it open to chapter 10. We're finishing this chapter 5 through 10 middle section. It's the hardest parts of 1 Corinthians, the most difficult, the most uh, confrontational, a lot of challenges to repent, to turn from sin, to turn back to Jesus, excuse me, turn back to Jesus. What we've said is there's this temptation we have to say, Corinth was a messed up church, and look at how bad they are, right? And not realize, like, we're messed up. We need to turn to Jesus. We need to stop chasing after false saviors and turn and run to Jesus ourselves. And so that's the call again and again throughout this section. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, it'll be around page 957 in the black Bibles you'll see under the chairs if you want to grab one of those and open that up to the New Testament, page 957. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're finishing up chapter 10. And in chapter 10, it started off last week with talking about how there were these Old Testament people of God that had been a part of the saved community of the people of God. They'd come out of the Exodus, and yet many of them drifted from God. Many of them were destroyed. Many of them died. Uh, It's this kind of wake-up call. We talked about last week this, hey, pay attention. This is serious. And so he's continuing that tone. Um, So next four weeks, we're going to enter into a come to Jesus. He is gentle and lowly. He will give you rest, period, of observation and meditation of his kindness and his rest. But we're today still finishing up the hard sayings of Jesus of, man, turn from idolatry. It is, it is bad stuff that you're playing around with. Don't, don't play with that stuff. Don't play with greed. Don't play around with division. Don't play around with sexual morality. Turn to Jesus. It's serious. So this week we're calling it glory war. Glory war. Now, two ideas that are very biblical. Uh, God is all about his glory. We find our peace in glorifying God, saying God is the great one. God is the big one. God is the hero of every story. Um, And the scriptures continue to tell us that there's a great conflict, a spiritual battle, a war for glory. I just read an article last week that was really good by Thaddeus Williams saying that self-worship is now one of the most common kinds of worship. Jonathan sent that to me, actually. It was a fantastic article about self-worship, really kind of scary when you look at it. Uh, Had a hashtag for every commandment of self-worship. But self-worship is saying, in this spiritual battle for glory, I'm going to take the glory for myself. Um, False worship in other ways can be, in this battle for glory, I'm going to give glory to money and say that money can save me. Or I'm going to give glory to pleasure and say that glory, uh, that pleasure can save me and it's glorious or comfort or health or whatever it may be. There's a real spiritual battle going on, a real war for glory. Paul Tripp talks about this in a lot of his writing as well. He's a biblical counselor. We have to wake up to the spiritual reality of this war, of this conflict. Uh, A movie that really woke me up to the realities of traditional warfare especially World War II, was the movie Saving Private Ryan. Any of you seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? I saw that as a young man. I'd actually just started seminary, and I remember watching that movie, and um, along with most moviegoers, I was just kind of shocked into stunned silence at the first opening battle scene, the coming into the beach there at Normandy. It was overwhelming. Uh, It was gruesome. It was just unrelenting violence. It was a terrible scene. And commentators note about this movie particularly that it was one of the first movies of its kind at that point. Um, 
where it was both an inspiring movie about World War II and the sacrifices that these men had made, and yet it was also gruesome and realistic about the difficulties and the pains that were involved. And that really woke me up to a newfound respect for my grandfather, who'd served in World War II, and my peers who were a part of the ongoing war on global terrorism, who have given their lives to serve. It, it woke me up to the realities, the gruesomeness, the difficulty, the pains of war. Well, in a similar way to that wake-up call that that movie was for many people, we have a wake-up call here in the text. Paul is saying, guys, this is serious. The, the Corinthians were sliding into a complacency where they were saying things like, oh, we have spiritual knowledge now, so we're free. We're saved. We're forgiven. God's grace. It doesn't matter what we do. Paul's like, no, you're, you're playing with fire. You're slipping into some dangerous behavior that will kill you. It will eat you. It will destroy you. And so Christians for 2,000 years have struggled with how do we balance out this tension between absolute security and Jesus? I mean, Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he is holding you in his hand and nothing, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Paul repeats this concept in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How do we balance that out with the tension that, man, life away from Jesus, it's, it's death, it's destruction. Charles Spurgeon would say, well, it's just like if you're warning someone, hey, there's a pit, don't fall into it. Part of the way you keep the person from going into the pit is by warning them, there's a pit, don't go into it. And so a lot of commentators think that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, don't run from Jesus, run to Jesus. Flee from idolatry, Free, flee from false gods. Run to Jesus. He is the source of life. He is your only hope. So we'll pick up in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 14. It's a couple of the verses we looked at last week, but they're kind of a transition point. Sums up the whole chapter somewhat. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, right? Run away from false gods that can't really save you. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then chapter 11, verse one, I think it's a good ending to this whole section. Verse one, be imitators of me, Paul says, as I am of Christ. He's like, we covered a lot of confusing territory. If you're not sure what to do, just follow me as I follow Jesus, okay? I'm gonna give you a model for you there. Um, Let me pray for us. There's some tough stuff here. We talked about this last week. Preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. We got one more week of me afflicting the comfortable today, okay? So I'm gonna be challenging you today. Paul's challenging us to wake up to the spiritual battle that's happening all around us. And then the next four weeks, we're gonna get to be comforted again as we meditate on Jesus coming for us. Let me pray that his spirit would meet us during this time. God, we pray that your spirit would be here with us, help us to see you, help us to know your closeness, your presence. I pray that you would wake us up to the spiritual reality, spiritual warfare all around us, to the dangers that are involved, um, to the spiritual violence that could befall uh, our own souls. God, help us to, to see you in all of it, that, that our ears would hear you calling to us that we'd find rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it's a, it's a war for glory. It's a battle for glory. Are we gonna glorify God? Are we gonna say God is the most glorious, the most weighty, the most awesome, the most beautiful of all things? Are we gonna say, you know what? No pleasure really is, no sexuality is, no my hobbies are, or my interests are, or, or fun, or parties, or intelligence, or a great career, whatever it might be, we wanna substitute secondary glories for the ultimate glory of God. And the scripture keeps saying, no, God, God's the ultimate glory and there's a spiritual battle we're engaged in and there's no neutrality. We have to pick a side. We have to take a side in this battle. So three-point outline. Number one, worship is real union. Worship is real union. Something active is taking place that we engage in in worship and we need to pay attention. We don't wanna be a Gnostic that says it's knowledge only, but our practices and the things that we do matter. Worship is real union. Secondly, worship can be dangerous. He's gonna talk about the demonic, some scary stuff there. Worship can be dangerous. There's real things there that that are scary that we need to watch out for. And then finally, worship should spread everywhere. Worship should spread everywhere. It it overflows into all of life, into everything we do. He's gonna give us particularities about eating meals and doing things out in public and what that looks like. So these are where he's kind of branching out beyond just the worship service, quote unquote, but to all of life, how we as Christians worship God in everything that we do. We are to glorify God, whether we eat or drink and everything that we do, glorify God, worship him, honor him with all of life. So the first point is worship is real union. We'll see this in verses 14 through 18. So we have that kind of transition section in 14 and 15, where he's talking about fleeing from idolatry, kind of the theme of the whole chapter. And then he's going to pick up a separate separate little kind of flow of logic in verses 16, 17, and 18. So again, verse 14, we take this as kind of where he's going with the whole thing. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What's he saying? He's like, don't play around. Don't think that just if you give mental assent to Jesus, then you can go off and do whatever you want to. It matters what you do. It matters how you live. He says in verse 15, I'm speaking to you as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Something that we say a lot here. I don't have an authority on my own. I'm not like some kind of special anointed one that has magical authority. I have a proclaiming authority. I'm gonna speak this, this book to you. So any authority I have, any binding that I may put on your heart or your conscience should come from, from here, from the spirit of the Lord working through the scriptures. 
And so we make a practice of, of teaching what the scripture says and doing like what Paul just says, like, hey, I'm, I'm talking to sensible people. Check, check what I'm saying. Does this line up with the commands of Jesus and what he's told us in his word? So, so in verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, he's talking about the communion ceremony, right? The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not? I lost my place. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So participation in the blood, participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So remember last week talked about the people of Israel, how they were part of the saved people and they did all these saved things together, but then they kind of drifted from God, they rebelled and they were destroyed. That's the warning. Like, and just hanging out here doesn't make you a part of what God is doing. Remember back in Israel, they were all active participants and yet they drifted from God and were destroyed. So there's a couple of words that are repeated here. Participation, I don't know if you heard that echoed a couple times, and one. So this is real union, active union, a oneness. We're coming together with God. We're joining in the glory of God when we take part in Christian worship. Oneness, active participation. That word participation is a Greek word koinonia, which is often translated as fellowship. If you've been around Christian churches much, we usually use the word fellowship to mean a potluck supper, right? Hanging out, ice cream, fried chicken, definitely an important part of participation in the oneness of the body of Christ. Those things are good, right? That's a part of it. But the word koinonia, the Greek word participation, sometimes it's translated partnership. So we use that word to talk about our our membership at the church. If you want to be a member of our church, we call you a partner. So partnership, participation, fellowship, all these words have the idea of an active engagement, like a business. You're going in a business with someone, then you're part of a fellowship with them. You're leaning on each other. You're helping each other out. You're bought into the business. That's what happens in Christian worship. It's you on purpose saying, I'm a part of this. I'm pledging my allegiance to King Jesus. And we together are building active unity where we're saying we're rowing in the same direction. We're following Jesus together. We're a part of what he is doing in the world. We're a part of his saved people. Paul's like, this is on purpose, right? You know, when you come to Christian worship, you're doing that on purpose. He's like, so how can it be okay to dabble in pagan worship then? That's what he's going to get to in the second point. This point, I just want us to kind of dwell on the beauties, on the realities of this taking sides, of this real active participation, of this real joining in and say, this is good and we want to do this. He's like, Of course, it's a rhetorical statement. Of course, you know this is what we're doing, right? When we have Christian worship, when we take part, you're saying I'm a part of what Jesus is doing in the world. Now, we just have to deal quickly, and I don't want to take too much time on this, that Christians for 2,000 years, we like to debate a lot of things, have debated the nature of that participation, right? How many of you have ever gone to a different kind of denomination or a different church besides this one? Anyone? Okay, so you've seen other ways of doing church, right? I grabbed a picture of someone holding the bread and the cup. It looks a little more like the way we do it with our bread and cup, which of course, you know, the way we do it is the only way to do it, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We already covered that in previous sermons. Go back and listen to the old sermons. We like the way we do it, right? We do it on purpose, but really the whole point is to take some food and to take some drink and to say, you know what? We're remembering Jesus. 
we're remembering that Jesus is our true food and drink. And Christians can get totally sideways in the details of what it means and how to do it. I'm not saying the details don't matter, right? I, as a Protestant evangelical Christian, I, I do not agree with some of the other denominational teachings. I don't agree with transubstantiation or consubstantiation. If you're theologically informed enough to know what that means, I don't agree with that. But I also don't think you're evil if you prefer that. That's fine, right? I don't agree with that. I think it's saying more than the scripture says. I think the point is Jesus. That's the point. That's what we unify around. This is about Jesus. This is about me actively unifying myself with Jesus. Something real is happening when we worship Jesus. For those of us that have a more memorial or a more proclamatory understanding of the communion elements, we can say there's still a real spiritual presence of Jesus whenever we, by faith, are participating in something Jesus told us to do. So we would say there's not something magical in the elements themselves. What's taking place is us by faith coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, I love you. You're my only hope. So just like when you hear the word preached, if by faith you're trusting in the gospel, you're trusting in Jesus for you, that he took your sins on the cross, that he gives you his resurrection life, that Jesus loves you, by faith, the spirit is really with you when you're trusting in the word preached. In the same way, when we come to the communion table, by faith, it's not a magic in the table. By faith, we're trusting that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Same thing, let's stretch it out beyond the public worship service. When you're helping an old lady across the street, by faith, because you trust that Jesus helped you and gave his life for you, you're like, I'm gonna serve my neighbor. I'm gonna love someone else. I'm gonna help another person. By faith, there's, there's real unity with Jesus in that. The spirit is with us. There. Whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, Jesus promises us. So there's real union, real participation with Jesus when we purposefully pledge our allegiance to him and say, Jesus, you're my only hope. So I want to invite us to do that regularly, to say, yeah, that's, that's an important part of our life. Different Christians from different backgrounds, we might disagree on you know, the details. Uh, man, there, I went down a rabbit hole a few months ago on the internet. People were debating like what kind of grain was used in the Passover bread, was it barley or spelt or wheat? You know, what was in, like, guys, I'm not sure. I think Hawaiian bread is okay. You know, like, I think, I think our flatbread from Panera is going to be fine. The point is, Jesus is our true food, right? It's really about Jesus, not this. Jesus is our true food. Jesus is our true drink. Jesus is our only hope. That's what we're saying when we take communion together. And so we have this theological category we call the uh, means of grace, So it's kind of a fancy way of saying, you recognize that you're broken without Jesus. You need Jesus. We are going to go to get Jesus. We're going to go to the word, right? You're going to say, I need to hear once again that story that Jesus gave himself for me. So what are you going to do? You're going to read the word. You're going to sit under the preaching of the word. You're going to memorize the word. You're going to sing the word back to Jesus. Those are means of grace. The historic elements of Christian worship communion, preaching, singing the word, praying together, fellowshipping with other believers, serving each other. These are means of grace. These are ways that the Christian church has said, you're thirsty? Well, there's the spigot. Go go turn on the spigot and go receive the living water of Jesus. And so in our church, we, we hammer this all the time. We say, if you want to follow Jesus with this, let's gather and worship together. Let's say, man, I need to hear the word. I need to pray with other believers. I need to greet others with a holy kiss. We, we prefer holy side hug here at Grace Bible Church. 
But if, like, if you're Mediterranean, that's fine. You can do holy kiss. Um, but we're going we're gonna to try to fellowship with one another, partner with one another. There's going to be real union in Jesus is my only hope, and we're going to come and, and do that together. So I think a great application to this is like, yeah, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus even more. I, I need Jesus. I need to see him in communion. I need to see him in the preaching of the word. I need to see him in, in worship as we sing songs to Jesus. There are also the other elements we talk about a lot, serving on a team, right? As we serve, we're, we're unifying ourselves with Jesus who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give myself as a ransom for many. So Jesus said, this is what life is really about, is serving others. So we come alongside, we have serve teams here at the church to extend the work of the church formally, but also, as I kind of jokingly referred to, just neighbor serving, right? Loving the person across the street, serving the people you work with. That's, that's real union with what Jesus is doing in the world. And then the third step we talk a lot about is joining a group. So we have formal groups where you say, let's study the Bible, let's pray together, let's encourage one another, like small groups in homes or at the church, women's ministry on Thursdays, celebrate recovery on Mondays. Those are formal groups. But you can also just grab a friend. You're like, man, I, don't, I can't, I keep missing it. I can't make this night. I can't make that night. You can just grab a friend and say, let's pray together. Let's encourage one another. Let's read the scriptures. Walk beside. We're joining in familial unity, real union with another brother or sister in Christ. I can't, I can't make this formal group, but maybe we can have coffee at 5 a.m. before work and we can encourage each other in our walk with Jesus. So gather, serve, and join our ways of taking part in what Theologians have always called the means of grace, real union in what Jesus is doing in the world. So this leads to the next point. Paul's building this case like, okay, you practice real participation, real union in Christian worship, right, Corinthians? And he's like, and remember, the Old Testament saints did that. They, they partook, verse 18 is kind of a transition verse. Don't, don't they participate in what was sacrificed at the altar, right? They would make a sacrifice to the Lord and their worship in the Old Testament, and then they'd take part in the meal, if you didn't know this, Old Testament worship had a lot of symbols of sacrifice to kind of picture the gospel for us, but it was also like a big barbecue. They would eat together. They, you know, there was a fellowship meal that was a part of those sacrifices usually. And so he's like, there's real participation. So now he's turning to then the pagan uh, things and he's saying, worship can be dangerous. Watch out. So worship can be dangerous, verses 19 through 22. So he transitions to verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? or that an idol is anything? So remember, there's a debate. It came up in chapter eight. We've been kind of, he's been teasing this out in different ways. The Corinthians are smart. They're like us, modern, smart people with iPhones, right? They're like, we know these false gods aren't real. So it doesn't really matter what we do. And that's a form of Gnosticism. We fall into it a lot today. What Gnosticism is, is saying that knowledge, you can hear the root there in Gnosticism, knowledge is all that matters. So I know the facts about Jesus, so now that I know the facts about Jesus, I've given mental assent to Jesus. I'm good. He's forgiven me. And now I can walk on my merry way and do whatever I want to, right? He's like, no, 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 that's, that's dangerous. The Bible actually teaches that you can't know stuff about Jesus and then not do the things Jesus tells you to do and say that you really love him. Now, we, we got to be careful, right? Because we're all sinners. Like we all fail. I fail every day. But Jesus is very clear in John 15, if, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commandments, right? Like, if you love me, you'll, you'll follow me. So again, Paul's giving hard warnings here. You can't, you can't follow these other gods and say you're following Jesus. You, you can't do it. Something very dangerous is going on here. James talks about it, right? Don't say you believe and then walk away and mistreat people. 
This warning comes up in a lot of places in the New Testament. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, so what do I imply that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? So he's like, yeah, idol's not really anything. We know it's stupid. It's all fake. The food, it's no big deal. It's just food, right? No big deal. It's okay. Their meat markets were all pretty much associated with, with pagan temples, right? They were, a, they were a minority, a religious minority in Corinth. Most people were involved in paganism. And here today, we can go to the butcher shop and there's generally no connection with any sacrifices made to idols, right? But here, the meat was always involved in some kind of sacrificial system. He's like, that doesn't mean you need to swear it off altogether. And so he's going to give more directions as we move through the text. But he says, no, verse 20, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So here's the thing. He's saying you cannot do this. You cannot come to church and take communion and say, I love Jesus, and then the next day serve this false god. In Corinth, some of it was particular pagan worship services in some way that they were engaging in because they were like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. We know it's all fake, so we can play along. He's like, no. Yeah, it might be fake. They may not be real gods, but there's demonic evil that's involved in this system. You, You need to separate yourself from that system. And he's already talked about other ways that we do this as well, other false gods that we serve, right? He talked about greed and lust and sexual immorality and division. He talked about all these other ways that we try to drink from the cup of demons instead of just drinking from the cup of the Lord. He's like, you cannot do this. Is there a way that you can? Yeah, there's a way. People do it all the time, right? We come to church, we participate in church, and then we go off and we participate in other forms of worship. He's not saying it's not physically possible. He's saying, watch out. This is dangerous. There's a real battle taking place. There's a spiritual war. And we don't have to be over-terrified of the demonic C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this in his uh, little kind of fantasy book about the demonic stuff. Screwtape Letters is kind of a made-up book that he did about it. He has this in his introduction. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence altogether, right? So that's one error. Just there's no such thing as demonic power. The other error is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. He's British. Let me translate a little bit. He's like, hail. It's like, what's up? Okay, that's what he's saying. So he's saying the devils are excited about a materialist and a magician. The devils are excited about us modern iPhone people that think none of that is real because they know they can get under our skin because we're stupid and we don't realize that they're there. They also think, man, the people that are obsessed with new age and spirituality also, they're excited about that. It's like, those are the two opposite mistakes that we make. One is, we're so smart, we're modern people. We know none of that is real. And he's like, okay, they, they got gotcha. you. The other is to be obsessed with it, to be all into the occultic practices of the new age. Uh, so number one, run from that stuff, right? Run from the new age stuff. Here's a good way to think about it. Um, we have like one of those diffusers that makes essential oil, it smells good in our room, right? Is that demonic? No, not necessarily. Now, if my friend 
is saying, oh, that's how you get the evil spirits to go away. That's scary, right? Do you see the difference? Like, so don't, don't join in these occultic practices. Run from that stuff. Like, oil is fine. It's just like he's saying with the meat. meat. Meat's fine. Don't worry about it. But if someone's inviting you into some occultic practice, then say, no, thank you. I, I don't, I don't want to participate, right? We have to be aware of evil powers that, that really do exist and not be so high-minded and so advanced that we're like, oh, we know all that stuff, superstition. And Paul's like, no, it's real. There's real evil. There's real demonic powers at play here. Um, we're modern people. We know that at the base of everything, there is no spiritual reality, right? It's just atoms and electrons, right? I'm being facetious. But that's kind of the way our minds go. We, we tend towards the materialist view. We tend towards the naturalist view that all there is is what we can measure and see and taste and touch, the kind of scientific worldview. Just to be clear, Christianity gave rise to the breakthroughs that we currently enjoy in science. Christians should not be anti-science. We just shouldn't worship science. So we just have to make, again, clear distinction. We shouldn't engage in the idolatry of science, the priesthood of science. But we should love science. We benefit from science. We love we love physics. We love buildings that are made well and don't fall in on our heads, right? Like we love science. We love breakthroughs that help us in advance and enjoy longer lives and all those things are great. Um, but it's not ultimate, right? Creation, the physical world is supposed to point us to a greater glory, which is God. That's what Psalm 19 says. That's what Romans 1 says. So I got a picture here, a chart of atoms. So Scientists are now discovering more and more, some of you that are in like experimental physics and chemistry, do we have a few of those here in the room? I mean, one or two, one or two, okay. Um, so good, I won't be corrected about my chart then later. <laughs> so atom is at the top of the chart. So measuring things by the size of an atom, you've got an atom as one atom unit, right? Now we're understanding that a nucleus of an atom is about one ten thousandth of the size of an atom. That's pretty small, right? You know, we already can't see atoms. I'm not sure how they figure this stuff out. Protons and neutrons are one one hundred thousandth of the size of an atom. Quarks and electrons, right? All these other crazy things, string theory, muons, leptons, all that weird stuff. I've, I've been down the rabbit hole. I've read those books. They're scary. They are one one hundred millionth of the size, right? The way I understand it with their, you know, particle colliders and weird stuff where they're trying to track this stuff, they can't see this stuff because it's so small. They can just kind of see its trail, you know? It's kind of like finding a snail trail on your sidewalk. It's, apparently, they can just kind of see, oh, it's been there, you know? Like, there was a quark here once. And so we're starting to understand deeper and deeper realities, unseen realities about the world. The danger of this is we could get caught up in our own glory as modern people. The danger of this is we can begin to believe our own press and start to think, we really are amazing. We know everything now. What's fascinating is Paul addresses this stuff. You know, the Greeks started discovering these basic elements, elementary principles. They would talk about the basic elements, atoms. They had some basic theories about this stuff. Sometimes they would talk about the basic elements of like fire, earth, air, water, stuff like that. Some of them had theories about atoms. They started to begin to understand this stuff. Paul talks about this in Galatians, and it's really fascinating. It's a parallel passage to what we're seeing here, where Paul is talking about false gods aren't real gods, but there is a demonic power at play. So in Galatians 4, 8, Paul's talking to the Galatians, and he says, formerly when you did not know God yet, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. 
He's saying before you knew Jesus, you were enslaved to these other false gods. And those false gods were actually demonic powers, spiritual powers, evil forces in this world. He goes on in Galatians 4, 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, right? Because God's always the initiator. He's the one that knows us first. Now that you know God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul's saying there's this like foundational building block of the world. He's using the language of quarks and leptons and atoms and nucleuses and protons, these elementary principles of the world, the basic elements, earth, air, fire, water, atoms, whatever it is at the time. We're always going to discover more details about it. You know, 100 years from now, our our great-great-grandchildren think we were stupid and primitive and they'll know more too. Paul's saying, but these basic principles, underneath all of that, they can be pulling you away from Jesus. These basic building blocks of this world, as we know it, there's spiritual realities at play. And just to be clear, I don't think protons are demons. Okay, I just want to clarify that. What I'm saying is we think we know the basic building blocks of everything. And Paul's like, there's, a, there's an evil going on that you are not aware of, and you need to watch out. So should we study science? Yes, we should study science. Please don't hear me the wrong way. But we can even turn science, we can even turn a good job, we can even turn a good relationship into a false God. And Paul is saying, when you're worshiping something that is not really a God, demonic powers grab onto that. When you worship your own identity, there's demonic forces at work there. When you worship science, a demonic force is, is, is jumping in there. When you worship comfort and pleasure, there are demonic forces at play saying, watch out. There's real evil in the world. Don't be so smart and sophisticated that you don't think evil exists. What's fascinating in Galatians 4, 8, 9, and 10 is not so much about the elementary principle stuff. He's saying that these Galatians that used to be idol worshipers, now they worship Jesus, but now they're getting lured into Jewish legalism, keeping the feasts and speaking the right Hebrew words and following all the details of the law to be more impressive to Jesus. Jewish legalism, we struggle with that today as well. And just biblical Christian legalism, saying I can be more loved by Jesus because I achieve more status as a Christian. I impress people with my performance. He's like, that's also a form of false idol worship. Isn't that crazy? Like biblical legalism can be a place where demonic evil takes root in our hearts and we're worshiping false gods. Worship can be dangerous. Paul's saying, watch out. Don't mess around with new age wackadoodle stuff. Don't, don't mess around with it. Don't mess around with false worship. I think that's a little easier for us. I don't know. New age is becoming more common in the church. Be careful. Don't use physical things to accomplish spiritual goals. That's probably the simplest way to say it, if you're confused about it. If you're like, can I light this fire? Can I smell this oil? Yeah, all day long. But don't use it to combat spiritual forces. Jesus is your only hope for that. If you're going to combat spiritual realities, we're told in Ephesians chapter 6 to run to Jesus, run to the gospel, pray, use the word, use prayer. We don't use oil. We don't use things. We don't use items to combat spiritual forces. We throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. 
So make sure you have an understanding there of that distance and run from these forms of false worship. But on the other hand, be aware, those of you that are materialists, C.S. Lewis's warning, you can fall into it just as easy. You'd be like, I'm so smart, I don't need any spiritual powers to get through life. And he's like, ah, be careful. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. So this brings us to the last point. The last point is that worship should spread everywhere. He's going to give some kind of hand-to-hand combat advice of like, as a religious minority in a modern world where nobody believes in Jesus and you're moving out into this world where people believe all sorts of different things, materialism or paganism or whatever it is, he's going to give us instructions and how to then proceed, right? As I said, they couldn't just go to H-E-B and buy their meat there apart from, you know, other forms of worship. It was always connected to different forms of worship. And so they've gone through this argument in different ways, but basically he's saying the meat is kind of neutral, just don't engage in pagan worship, Right? So if the meat can be enjoyed separate from pagan worship, don't worry about it. There's no magic in the meat. But if it's connected to the pagan worship, be careful. Don't, don't jump in there. So worship should spread everywhere. And what he's going to do is he's going to give some particulars of how to engage in these other forms of worship. And then he's going to give principles at the end. I'm a principle guy, so I'm going to start with the principles. The principles are God's glory comes first. It's verse 31. A lot of people have memorized this, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God's glory comes first. It's always our first principle. And then he's going to say, so I'm going to try to please and get along with other people so I may save more. So that's a secondary principle of making sure that the gospel is clearly heard and received by outsiders that don't know Jesus. And I just want to clarify that what Paul is doing is he's threading the needle on these Christian ethics, is he's threading the needle in a way that modern Christians, we often fail at this because we usually say, Glory of God alone or saving of sinners alone, and we don't hold those two things together. So we as a church have said, you know what? We really want to hold those two things together. The glory of God is like God is holy. He is awesome. You should be kind of terrified of him. He's amazing, right? Kind of lifting up God's standards and then caring about sinners. We should love outsiders who say, God is gracious. Look what Jesus did. Jesus came after you. He gave himself for you. He loves you. Run to Jesus, right? We have to hold those two things together. Paul always holds those two things together. You can't have one without the other. If you're all about the holiness of God, but you don't care about sinners, you don't look like Jesus. You're not following Paul as Paul follows Christ. And that's where he ends in chapter 11, verse one with this section. He's like, hey, if you're confused about this, just follow me while I'm following Jesus, right? Look at how I've given up my rights to serve other people. If you're all about helping people to see Jesus, and you're not maintaining a commitment to the glory of God as absolute first principle, what can happen is you can start to change the message to make it more appealing to your friends. You start to say, man, everything's about persuading people. It's all about persuading people. And you know what? If I just kind of, if I change this and I change that, you know, if I get rid of this doctrine and get rid of that doctrine, more people will believe, more people will buy in. And we have to, we have to hold these things in tension. There's an absolute standard of God's glory He's never changing. And then there's this constant desire for people to know him, that more would be saved. Okay, now he's going to give the details. So what do we do? Verse 23 says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. It's the love ethic. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So we're, we're seeking to follow the ethic of Jesus who loves others. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So ethics, when you're not sure about what to do, you're supposed to think about what would Jesus do, right? WWJD, do I care about other people or not? Am I serving other people or not? Verse 25, he says, so 
eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, right? Verse 26, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to God. Meat's not magical, right? If some weird priest made an incantation over the meat, it's the, the demon doesn't follow the meat around. You don't have to worry about it. He's saying, you can eat the meat. Don't worry about the questions of where it's been, where it came, you know, where that cow was raised, where it was slaughtered. You don't even have to think about it. You can just enjoy your barbecue, okay? But he gives some, some caveats. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience, okay? You go to someone's house. So you buy the meat, don't worry about it. Go to someone's house, eat the meal. They're a pagan, that's all right. I'm not worried about it. But verse 29, verse 28, excuse me. Verse 28, he says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Do you see the difference there? Go to the meat market. You don't care if it came from the pagan meat market. That's fine. Go to your friend's house. It's a pagan. That's fine. Enjoy the food your friend serves. But your friend is like, this is pagan food. (laughs) You're like, oh, okay. Well, now there's a conscience issue here. And he's saying, it's not even your conscience. Again, the Corinthians are like, Paul, doesn't it? It doesn't matter, right? There's no magic in the meat. And he's like, well, this is a relational issue. If your friend is like, I'm inviting you into my pagan worship, then you have to say, I can't, I can't join you in your pagan worship. That's, where, that's the line for your conscience. Do you see that? And he's saying, the conscience is not about the meat. It's about the other person's conscience inviting you into it. So he's saying, they've offered you this meat. This has been offered in sacrifice. You're doing it for the sake of conscience. Verse 29, I don't mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be, ter- be, ter- uh, be determined by someone else's conscience, right? He's saying, someone else's conscience doesn't determine what's right and wrong for me. I'm just trying to not have them fall into thinking it's okay to worship false gods. So I'm worried about their conscience, not my conscience. I don't think the meat is magical. I'm worried about them. I don't want to encourage them anymore to go down this road. And that's where Christians fall into so many difficult decisions, Right? That's why some of us can engage with our pagan friends doing this thing that seems kind of pagan and our other friend is like, man, I'd never do that. But if we're really praying and we're saying case by case, situation by situation, Lord, help me to just be Jesus to them. Again, Paul said in chapter nine, I'm not gonna violate the basic laws of morality, but there are all these gray areas where I'm not sure. Christians debate these things all the time. Some Christians are like, I'll never watch an R-rated movie, right? Other Christians are like, well, I take it on a case-by-case basis. There might be something that comes up and I'm going to turn it off. I don't need to watch that. It's going to lead me to sin. I'm going to practice moderation. I'm going to you know, control my eyes, my heart, case-by-case. Case. Like drinking, right? People get in trouble drinking. Scripture doesn't say it's wrong to drink at all, but it says it's wrong to get drunk. So some Christians are like, man, I'm just not even going to touch it. Other Christians say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to practice moderation. I'm going to take this on a case-by-case case basis. Paul's opening up this whole category of what we would call gray issues, or sometimes theologically, it's called disputed matters. It's talked about also in Romans chapters 13, 14, 15 at the end there. So there's this idea that there are things that Christians generally disagree on. Paul is saying, how do we decide these things? The glory of God and the help of, how's that friend going to hear the gospel, right? Like if I do this, is that luring this person away from Jesus or helping this, people, this person come closer to Jesus? So again, not obvious stuff. You know, we don't say, so I'm going to murder so they can see Jesus. Right, they're just clear lines. There are things that are always wrong. We don't murder. We don't cheat on our spouse, right? Like there are 
standard Ten Commandment morals of the Old and New Testament that are always clear. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about these, these questionable situations. Should I go to this party? Kind of seems like a pagan festival, or maybe it's just a, a party, and they're from a different religion than me. You know, like I'm, I'm not sure. And so we, we pray it through, and we say, I don't want to engage in pagan worship with my friend, but I want to meet my friend on their ground as much as I can. And we're going to have to pray that through and ask the Spirit to lead us. Paul's saying, we're worried about their conscience. We're not worried about our conscience. We have a lot more freedom than they do. We want to make sure that they meet Jesus. Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. He's like, we're going to try to glorify God. His glory is preeminent. We're going to try to engage people as much as we can, be as friendly as possible, be as hospitable as, as possible, not put up unnecessary barriers. He's going to say later on in 1 Corinthians 14, speak common language, do things in your worship practices so that outsiders can understand and feel welcomed. But we don't change our ultimate priority of, of the glory of God. We, we have standards. We're just going to try to meet people on their ground as much as we can as we try to show them the glory of of God. Help them to see that they may be saved. Paul ends with chapter 11, verse 1. He's like, I know this is confusing, so just follow me as I follow Jesus. <laughs> so here's an application for us. Look for a model that loves the glory of God and loves outsiders so that they may be saved. Those are Christian models for you to find, to follow. Say, I need a mentor like Paul that's following Jesus, that passionately loves the holiness and the glory of God. I can watch them, right? And nobody's perfect. Paul's not even saying he's perfect. Repeatedly throughout the New Testament, he's like, man, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners, right? He knows he's a failure, but he's like, there are good, there are models that we can follow. There are people that are farther along in their faith. And we're like, okay, I know that guy's reading his Bible. I know that lady's reading her Bible. I know that she's trying to walk with Jesus. I know that she loves the glory of God. And I also know that she wants to see people know Jesus and his sweet kindness in the gospel. Follow these models. That's what Paul is offering. Follow me as I follow Christ. I also have a picture here of people praying before food. Um, it's Thanksgiving week, and so I think this is actually a Thanksgiving picture uh, that I found online. But really, Christians should give thanks all the time, right? Um, and we have to be careful because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't like stand on the table and say, hey, look at me, I'm praying. You know, like we got we to gotta watch out for that, not a showy kind of prayer. But Christians should be prayerful, thankful people. Paul says, if I receive it with thankfulness, it's a blessing from God. Christians are the kinds of people who are always saying, God has provided for me. When you eat, whether you pray out loud formally or whether it's quick, are you saying to God, God, you've provided for me. I'm receiving with thankfulness what you've given to me. Another great cross-reference for that that talks about similar issues is in 1 Timothy where Paul is saying, man, don't fall into these religious legalists that are saying this food's good and that food's bad and this food will make you more holy and that food will make you less holy. He's like, it really doesn't matter. Just give thanks for the food. Just say thank you. He says this in, in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, everything created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Again, scripture, just to be clear, scripture says things about drunkenness. We're not talking about drugs and alcohol, overuse, those kinds of things. But he's saying everything in general, food, this world is made to be enjoyed by God. 
Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. It's received with thanksgiving from him. So we receive these. We don't argue about it. We don't say, well, I'm, I'm closer to God because I've participated in this kind of food. No, he's like, just receive it as a gift from God. And then the picture is that this ripples out. So he's been talking about particularities of Christian worship, right? He was talking about communion and how Christians come get together to worship Jesus in that way. And then now he's talking about eating in the marketplace. And now he's talking about eating at someone else's home. And, and we see this picture of how Christian worship just ripples out and it starts to affect everything, right? Uh, a quote that I've loved by John Piper is that missions exists because worship does not. So, the glory of God, worship, honoring God, goes along with missions, evangelism, wanting people to see and, and savor and know Jesus. Those two things go together. And so we gather formally to worship Jesus, to proclaim the glory of God, say, Jesus, you're my only hope. But also that goes with us wherever we go. And that's really what Paul is getting at here. Do you know, do you understand that the Spirit of God goes with you everywhere you go to the marketplace, to your friend's house, and is that rippling out through you wherever you go so that you're representing Jesus, his priorities, his desires? So again, big principles, the glory of God, clarity about the gospel. Paul's saying, I'm going to negotiate as much as I can with people. I'm going to try to meet people on their playing field, understand them, give grace to them so that more men may be saved. And then finally, man, we, we need models. We need good models that we can follow. You've seen other people do this well. Follow them, learn from them, uh, ask them to encourage you and, and help you. So there's this cosmic glory war, a competing war. Are we, are we gonna fight for our own glory? Are we gonna fight for someone else's glory? He's like, be careful. There's spiritual forces of evil involved there. Or are we gonna fight? Are we gonna struggle for God's glory? We say, God is the most glorious. He is the greatest. He is, he's the best. He's the one who gave himself for me. Uh, one of the beautiful scenes in Saving Private Ryan, that movie that I talked about in the beginning, kind of woke people up to the brutalities of war. Captain John Miller had finally saved Private Ryan at the end. Sorry, spoiler alert. It's like a 25-year-old movie, right? So, so he saved Private Ryan and he's dying. And he grabs him and he pulls him in close. And he says, earn this, earn this. And a lot of Christians have a mixed reaction to that scene, right? Because we know, especially if you're a Protestant evangelical Christian, we get kind of twitchy around the language of earning and merit. We know that we can never do anything to earn the love of Jesus. We can never do anything to merit the sacrifice of Christ. But there's something right and true about what he's saying where Jesus lays down his life for you. And Paul says it this way in, in Philippians chapter one. He says, only let us live up to what we have already attained in Christ. Jesus gave himself for you, so run to Jesus. You can't continue to run after these things and run to Jesus, so make your decision and run to him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you invite us to yourself. You've given yourself for us. You've taken our sin. You give us life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you invite us to walk with you. Help us by your spirit to walk faithfully for your glory and for the saving of many. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.